You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for joining us. In this CyberWire special edition, an extended version of my conversation from earlier this year with Peter W. Singer. We spoke not long after the publication of his book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. So we started this project almost five years ago, and there was a series of uh, seemingly, you know, kind of new breakpoints. But actually, now in retrospect, uh, they signified a new normal, um, and they were everything from, uh, for example, you had the first what was called Twitter war uh, that played out where Israel and. Um, Hamas had one of their sort of regular conflicts, and there was a series of days of airstrikes and the like, and it kind of ended inconclusively on the ground. But alongside it, for the first time, you had these um, online, what we now call battles, but basically debates going back and forth as to what was happening, uh, literally millions of messages. And um, what was interesting about it was not just that you had these messages going back and forth, but that the vast majority of the messages claiming what was happening on the ground, who was in the right and wrong, were being pushed by people physically outside the region. And what was even more notable than the fact that, you know, you could, for example, weigh in on this conflict, even though you might be, you know, checking Twitter on the subway and the way to work, 
is that actually the ebb and flow of the conflict had real-world consequences. Uh, they later found that um, essentially whichever side was winning, so to speak, in the trends online, it shaped the um, both pace and uh, location of the airstrikes by over 50%. What was essentially happening is that the Israeli generals and politicians were watching the maps, but also watching their Twitter feed, which now, of course, you know, seems normal. Another example uh, about five years back was we had a um, group of terrorists seize a shopping mall in Kenya, and the government tried to shut down uh, communication and reporting about what was happening. And the result was that the terrorists who were on social media became the primary source for the world on their act of terrorism. So actually, we fed into uh, the the very goal of terrorism, which is you know to drive the message and and it's to drive fear viral. But what was again interesting is the terrorists realized that because they own the narrative, they also didn't have to tell the truth online. You know, again, sort of a, a seemingly obvious realization, but um, you know this is where we are at. And then finally, you had a policy change uh, in the U.S. military, which allowed deploying service members to Afghanistan uh, to use Facebook and Twitter. And so for the first time, you had um, people in the battlefield able to uh, friend their enemy. And in turn, their enemy, the Taliban, could not just friend and stalk and track and communicate with them, but could equally reach out and connect to you know everything from uh, family members, friends, journalists back home, you name it. And so you had this kind of connection point. And so all of these things were a spark for us to start the book project. And then we started to explore essentially how social media was being used in war zones around the world. But very quickly, that widened. If you're looking at, for instance, uh, Iraq, and Syria, the rise of ISIS, becomes a story of terrorism. If you're looking at terrorism, um, you have a cross with things like the drug war in Mexico, and we started to look at how drug cartels were using it. Then we began to look at, hold it, Chicago gangs. If you're looking at um, how it was used in places like Russia uh, and Ukraine, very quickly it moved into American domestic politics. And so the project was essentially uh, trying to explore just what's going on here in this new form of online conflict that, as we talk about it, is not about hacking of computers on the network, you know, sort of the classic definition of cyber war, but rather hacking the people on social networks by driving ideas viral, what we call a like war. Yeah, it's fascinating. One of the things you, you dig into is um, the effect that crowdsourcing has had on politics and war and reporting and um, it strikes me that, you know, in some ways crowdsourcing sort of it short circuits what had previously been gatekeepers when it came to providing information. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things is that when we cut across all of these different actors and, you know, we uh, have cases that looked at everything from, you know, Donald Trump's very first tweet to then how the Donald Trump campaign uh, utilized social media to ISIS, to celebrities uh, like Taylor Swift, to corporations, to athletes, um, to teenagers, uh, criminal groups, uh, you name it. You know, what cuts across this is just as you hit it, this notion of the traditional breakdown of the gatekeepers. And you know, even the very um, meaning of the word media uh, comes from the Latin, the middle. 
and the media was uh, the group that was in the middle that would collect the news and then distill it and share it with the rest of the world. It was the gatekeeper. And again, this this meaning uh, dates back uh, centuries. What we have now is essentially we can all be collectors of information and we can be individual sharers of information. And it breaks down that notion of something in the middle, uh, the gatekeepers as you talk about it. And you know what was interesting is that um, people that range from uh, Donald Trump to NBA players to terrorists all have talked about how they love social media because it is the equivalent of them owning their own newspapers, the way they've all described it, uh, that they don't have to go through this media in the middle to push out their message. And again, all of this, like every other technology, uh, like you know, the meaning of the word hacking, um, it can be for good and bad. Uh, we profile, for example, um, groups that have are individuals that sort of illustrate this. And I think, a, you know, fascinating example is a set of little girls. Uh, one was a little girl in Pennsylvania who, um, the newspaper in her small town, uh, goes out of business because of what social media has done to the media business. And so she launches her own online newspaper. Now, the first story, you know, it, it's uh, about the birth of her baby brother, you know, mm. not doesn't go all that viral. But later on, she begins to report on a variety of things in her small town, including she's the first one to break the news of the first murder in her small town in over a generation. And it's a sort of wonderful story of um, empowerment and news spreading. Um, actually, she also reports on corruption in the city government. And government officials start to meet in a bar to avoid her. And she's under the age of 10. But then you have the flip <laughs> side of this. Um, it's a great story. You have the flip side, though, of um, a little girl named uh, Jana Jihad who uh, equally um, under the age of 10 decides to become uh, an online reporter. Um, but she grows up in the Palestinian territories and she, uh, her, her life has been shaped by loss. Um, two family members have been killed in violence there. And so she actively seeks out battles to not just report them, but as she describes, her camera is her gun. Um, she sees herself as a new kind of information warrior. And so it shows you kind of this duality of um, the, the gathering of information, but also in its spread, it can be weaponized. And, and we see just that. I mean, obviously, uh, in uh, front and center has been um, Russian operatives uh, in our recent elections and, and continuing and, and the rise of the trolls. It mm. seems like um, this new type of warfare uh, that doesn't require a huge investment to get great returns from. It's um, an absolutely essential point in two different ways that you hit on there. One is uh, the essentially low barriers to entry of this space and the proliferation of uh, the tactics. And then the second is to understand um, trolling and its um, impact, not just in internet, uh, but moving beyond to, for instance, our politics. Uh, so on the first part, we 
again, explored all of these different kinds of actors. We also gathered, you know, both massive, you know, quantitative data, but also did interviews of people who range from, you know, for instance, the literal godfather of the internet itself to recruiters for extremist groups, to tech company executives, to uh, celebrities, to members of the U.S. military, both active to uh, retired, uh, including, um, you know, one uh, retired three-star who's become quite controversial, General Michael Flynn, um, you name it, all of these different things. And what we found was a consistent set of rules across these actors, a consistent set of tactics, hmm. um, you know, what we call like war, this, this hacking of people on the networks, it actually follows a particular set of tactics, a particular set of rules, regardless if you are Taylor Swift or Junaid Hussein, uh, who was ISIS's top recruiter. And one of the things is that groups are learning these set of tactics and then they're mimicking each other and they're spreading across. So one of the more amusing examples of this, but kind of scary examples of this is, uh, the very same tactics that were used by Russian information warriors to, you know, and they've used it everywhere from uh, targeting Ukrainian military units to uh, political campaigns, be it Brexit to uh, the U.S. election uh, to the upcoming European elections. That's been mimicked by actors that range from uh, a collective of Lady Gaga fans who consciously copied the Russian tactics to try and sabotage the prospect of rival movies when uh, her movie A Star is Born came out. Uh, a set of her fans organized to create uh, sock puppet accounts and false stories and false reviews of the rival movies. Uh, to most recently, there's been the announcement of an app for $29 where you can um, plant stories in someone's uh, Facebook feed to try and manipulate them to some end. Uh, so, for instance, the company that advertises it talks about how you can um, uh, manipulate your spouse uh, by, um, for example, planning different kind of suggestive imagery. Um, they'll get over 200 uh, messages uh, and, and stories uh, that they'll be seen in their feed to um, if you want to manipulate. And, you know, it's for everything from uh, interpersonal relations uh, to you want them to buy a puppy to a different example is to uh, try and get a girlfriend or boyfriend um, planning all sorts of different stories about um, maybe they should marry you, all these sorts of things. It, it's allowing a kind of targeting that wasn't possible before. So this kind of um, these tactics, they're proliferating. And that's why we're going to see more and more of them hitting, again, everything from elections and not just at the national level. We're seeing these tactics uh, swinging down to even the local level, but also all sorts of other enterprises. The second thing that you hit is trolling. And again, the pervasiveness of trolling um, that's out there. And there's a core lesson of trolling that too many of us um, aren't aware of. It's basically the maxim is attack and then play the victim. Attack and then play the victim. And again, you can see this in everything from the very origin of internet trolling. We go back and tell the story of the literal first internet trolls and where the terminology comes from to how it's popped up today into American politics and how it's almost become the essence of American politics today. Attack, but then play the victim. I, I want to 
dig into uh, the platforms themselves. They say that, well, there's no way that we can, uh, at the scale we're running, there's no way that we can filter uh, messages, and you wouldn't even want us to anyway. We want to, uh, you know, we want free speech, and we want everyone to be able to share their ideas. I mean, a couple of things come to mind with me. First of all, is there a is there a government role to play in terms of regulating what can and can't go on these platforms or or guidelines and so forth? But also, it strikes me that um, really what they're saying when they when they say we can't filter this stuff is. You know, we can't filter this stuff and still bring you this product for free. We can't filter this stuff and still operate at the profit margins with which we operate. D- does that make any sense? Yeah, and it's interesting because what we explore in the book is this evolution. So there's always been a bit of a contradiction where the companies say, um, you know, there's even before we can't, it's that we shouldn't. Um, right. That's not our job. Uh, we don't want to be, uh, as for example, Mark Zuckerberg has put it, the, the arbiters of truth. Uh, or for example, you go back to the very origin of, uh, YouTube. Um, YouTube is created as a way, um, in essence around censorship, uh, its origin. Um, one of the idea sparks for it is the infamous, uh, Super Bowl nip slip, uh, the Janet Jackson episode where, you know, something happens, uh, but there's, um, it's very difficult media won't show it, uh, afterwards. Um, but, uh, people want to find a way to find it, a video sharing service. And that's one of the origins of it. But then the, what, as we explore is that the reality is, is they've always been in this game of deciding what is allowed or not from the very starting point. It may have begun, uh, as a way around censorship, but very quickly, for instance, YouTube gets pulled into everything from, well, we need to censor for, um, intellectual property theft violations, Hmm. uh, to, um, child pornography, over time, that initial intervention expands. So it's, well, you can say and do everything except, and initially it's child porn. Well, we can all agree that's bad. Right. Then post 9-11, um, it becomes, uh, and, and beheading videos, it becomes um, extremist uh, imageries of violence. But then you get issues of, well, what about... Um, messages that don't show violence, but inspire violence. For example, Al-Alaki was a um, a cleric who inspired a series of uh, suicide bombings. And um, at the time, it's allowed on YouTube. In fact, um, the algorithms are quite helpful, and they actually will steer you to more of his sermons. If you're interested in this extremist, um, here's more of them. and so then we move to, okay, well, if it pushes violence and then we get uh, Charlottesville, ooh, now it got kind of complicated because, well, if we could all agree that Al-Qaeda and ISIS was bad, well, what about neo-Nazis? Hold it. That starts to cross into the far right. But hold it. I thought these were, quote, very fine people mm. um, uh, to similarly, uh, it's not our, our job to be the arbiters of truth, to uh, move forward the 2018 election if you are um, pushing uh, false information about the um, uh, voting, uh, wh- where you can vote or who is allowed to vote, will kick you off. So the companies, for instance, have decided it is okay for you to fall to push false messages about 
political policy, but it is not okay for you to push false messages about your political rights. Um, and again, the point is, what I'm getting at is they've always been at this game. Uh, and it's essentially been them deciding um, when to intervene or not. And going back to the very first uh, issues around um, child pornography uh, to internet bullying, the company's decision has been a reluctant one because every minute, every dollar that you spend on content moderation is a minute is a dollar not spent on your bottom line, not spent on growing the business. Uh, so it's not a job that they want to be in. Uh, it's not what they set out to do and it doesn't make them money, but they're drawn into that task by a combined pressure of their own customers saying, you know what, we don't want to see this in the space that we're in, and the fear of government intervention, of politics crossing over into this space. So they've always been at this. They'll always struggle with it. There's another consistency, again, going back to, uh, for instance, the very early days of AOL to today discussion at Facebook and um, Google uh, with AI. They face a policy, a political problem, and they always try and find a technology solution to it, which rinse, wash, repeat creates a new set of political problems. Uh, and we see that consistency playing out again here with content moderation, where they're never going to be able to police all of it not just because of the scale, but um, we have a quote in the book from uh, a leading engineer at one of these companies who says, um, roughly the quote is, you know, yeah, AI could do it if we could just figure out the First Amendment issues. And you're like, dude, that's <laughs> like, you're always going to have this. Like, that's the very point of it. Um, so, uh, but the final issue to what you raise is, you know, but hold it, isn't there a role for government? Um, there is. Uh, and in fact, there has always been this threat of intervention. And what's playing out is essentially where you are physically located in the world, your government is intervening in different ways and it is reshaping the internet experience. So for instance, mm -hmm. uh, in the US, we have mild intervention, but mostly we defer to the marketplace and liability. That's very different than in the democracies of Western Europe, where we see more government intervention on uh, what's allowed or not, more fines towards the companies, et cetera, uh, to if you live in um, Saudi Arabia, uh, there's a different kind of internet intervention. Um, you might be put in jail for what you personally post uh, to um, if you are in Russia, uh, there's government intervention. It might be you might be put in jail or you might just happen to fall down an elevator shaft to if you live in China, there is control over what is literally technologically allowed on the internet. There's web filtering. But then we also have the move towards um, a different form of web policing where uh, it uses scoring and incentive systems. Um, we explore the, what's called the social credit system, where essentially um, you get a single score, almost like a credit score, uh, but it's not a financial credit score. It's your score in terms of your, quote, trustworthiness in the eyes of the government. 
and your online behavior determines that. And then that score is used for everything from micro rewards, uh, free charging for your phone at coffee shops to negative uh, punishments. Um, For example, if you don't have a high enough score, you might not be allowed to fly on an airplane or get a bed on an overnight train, or um, you might not be allowed to interview for a certain job to, it's actually being woven back into uh, internet dating profiles. So if your score is too low in the eyes of the government, you won't get a good date and you might not get married. Hmm. Yeah, I I remember uh, someone putting uh, out there on Twitter saying that, uh, you know, if you want to get the Nazis off your Twitter feed, tell Twitter that you reside in Germany and they and magically and mystically they just disappear because of the regulations in Germany against messages that have to do with with Nazi, uh, you know, um, uh, ideals. And, yeah, and so that's forth. this notion of um, the right to uh, forget. Um, right. And, um, you know, again, notice the word right. Uh, what are our rights are um, highly disputed uh, and they are notions of what are our rights change over time and uh, where, you know, you live. Um, and again, you know, even as we explore in the book, there's this uh, technology has always had that kind of impact. And it's really fascinating things of, you know, when did we first start to talk about the freedom of the press? Well, first you needed the printing press to happen. And then you needed the rise of the press, which was a profession of um, publishers uh, who figured out a second way to make money was not just publishing books, but publishing the first newspapers, the first newsletters. Um, you know, so again, we, we, these, these notions are constantly affected by it. social media has, has brought this, um, into a new way. Uh, and it's a technology that combines, uh, both the kind of, if you think about the, the way the telegraph, um, allowed connection from a distance, but also the way the radio or TV allowed broadcast. So what's different about social media is that it allows one to reach many instantaneously, but it also simultaneously allows one to reach one. And the actors that have figured this out, this combination, they're the ones that have been winning, so to speak. Uh, and again, you know, we look at these examples, everything from Trump to Taylor Swift to ISIS. Um, they're the ones that have figured out the, the change that this has all brought. You know, there's no shortage of, uh, you know, breathless reporting and headlines that um, these networks are going to be the end of us. It's going to lead to the downfall of democracy and uh you know, the way we communicate and, and our freedoms are, are at risk. Um, do you think that there's something to that? How, I guess what I'm getting at is you know, how accurate do you think uh, those warnings are? How, how concerned should we be as we head forward? It's a technology that um, can be used for massive good and massive evil. Guess what? like every other technology in the past. Hmm. Uh, So if you think of, for instance, the radio, um, Goebbels talked about how his rough quote was, this is talking about the rise of the Nazi party, um, the top propagandist of it said, um, we couldn't have done it without the radio. 
of course, the radio also allowed um, FDR's famous fireside chats that mobilized the free world against the Nazis. Uh, the radio also created um, uh, new forms of shared entertainment. So we've been through these kind of you know sea changes before. Um, what we need to recognize is social media is is on that level. Uh, and we've seen it empower new actors who've used it for evil and for good. Um, a couple of things, though, that are important about that. The first is I think right now we feel um, so negative about it, uh, largely because of how positive we felt about it just a couple years ago. You know, just a couple of years ago, there was this just crazy level of techno optimism. Um, you know, it was everything from the Arab Spring and, oh, social media has a, quote, liberating power and, you know, uh, dictatorships are on their way out uh, to, you know, Facebook has a um, – uh, motto that it's pushing out, um, that back then, uh, it's meant as a positive. Now it feels kind of creepy where they're pushing quote, the more we connect, the better it gets. Now think about that, you know, now how that sounds. Um, no, the more we connect, the more we connect. Uh, and you know, we've seen the good and the bad of it, but you had this kind of crazy level of techno optimism and now we're feeling sort of the, the second side of it. The other aspect, um, is that essentially, um, part of why it feels so bad is that we've not understood these new rules of the game. And so, you know, essentially the bad actors, whether it's, you know, Russian disinformation warriors to, uh, trolls, um, and conspiracy theorists, they've been the ones that have understood these rules. And so they've been manipulating their way into a level of success that, um, they wouldn't have otherwise achieved. And so it's up to us to re to learn these new rules, to be able to push back against it. And that's what the, the book project was, um, about is trying to help us all understand, you know, what are these rules of the game? There's a second thing that links to something of, I think, concern to everyone who's listening to this podcast is essentially understanding, you know, the second side of online conflict. You know, about a generation back, we started to recognize that the internet, that our online connections allowed, you know, not only this wonderful new economy, but allowed new types of threats. And we began to organize and train around that. And that's true whether you're talking about the U.S. military to uh, corporations, uh, all the way down to the individual. So, you know, we're certainly not where we need to be. But basically, we've spent a generation building up everything from, you know, the military gets cyber command to uh, kids at schools get taught about passwords to corporations um, create departments, get CISOs, you name it. Well, the same thing now is needed when it comes to the like war side of things, the ability to manipulate online trends and create new realities from them. And that needs to be recognized, whether you're talking about the military, uh, you know, for instance, we're just finishing up a piece that's looking at NATO and how, you know, NATO spent all this time 
worrying about um, hacking of infrastructure. And it turns out that the greater threat to it was these viral disinformation campaigns um, to corporations. Uh, we've seen corporations be hammered by this, you know, companies that range from Toyota to Nike have all faced um, greater challenge from online disinformation campaigns than they have from, you know, the classic someone cracking into email and stealing it. Um, and so we need to recognize this and then in turn, just like what happened in cybersecurity, build out everything from new organizations, new training, all the way down to our individual digital literacy. Um, digital literacy is not just about uh, two-factor right now. It's also understanding how you might be manipulated on um, Twitter or Facebook. That's Peter W. Singer. The book is Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, which he authored along with his co-author, Emerson Booking. For everyone here at the CyberWire, I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. 